Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you could say something to Edward Snowden, knowing that he listens to this particular episode, what would it be? You have the right to remain silent. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with General Michael Hayden, former head of CIA and NSA. He's a retired United States Air Force four-star general. We're talking today about how intelligence agents and policymakers view the world and the differences in their thinking, the warrantless surveillance controversy, aka domestic spying for the layman, ISIS, the Apple iPhone encryption controversy, and the general's thoughts on both Edward Snowden and Donald Trump. This isn't your usual AOC fair. It's a little bit less psychology and a lot more world affairs. But if you're feeling a little adventurous today and you're willing to jump outside the AOC comfort zone, then enjoy this one with General Michael Hayden. As you know, The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss body language and nonverbal communication, networking, persuasion, negotiation, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the U.S., just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444, everywhere else in the world, go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the right answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. With that, here's General Michael Hayden. Normally we do shows that discuss cognitive science and psychology and things like that, so first of all, going right to the, the meat of the topic before we go off on our usual tangents here is, does the intel guy look at cognition, cognitive bias, psychology, and psychological type of topics and content the same way as, let's say, the policy guy? Yeah, that's a great question. Here's how I describe it. I essentially say, look, the intel guy and the policy guy have got to come together in the room. And that room could be a canvas-covered tactical operations center in a desert somewhere, or it could be the Oval Office. So let me talk about my last job because where we got together was in the Oval Office. The intel guy comes into the room through a different door than the policy guy. The intel guy is fact-based. The policy guy is vision-based. The intel guy is inherently swimming out of detail trying to create generalized conclusion. He's fundamentally inductive. Policy guy, he's trying to take his first principles, you know, the ones that got him elected, he's trying to take those first principles and apply them to specific circumstances. He's inherently deductive. The intel guy, the world as it is. Policymaker, the world as we want it to be. And then finally, just because of the nature of the work, the intel guy is inherently pessimistic. Bob Gates, before he became Secretary of Defense, was actually one of my predecessors at CIA. Secretary Gates is fond of saying when a CIA analyst stops to smell the flowers, he or she then looks around for the hearse. Inherently pessimistic. The policymaker, though, inherently optimistic. If he or she didn't think they could make the world better, they wouldn't interview for the job. And so 
The challenge for the Intel guy, since he didn't get elected, the other one did, the challenge for the Intel guy is to get into the head of the policymaker to hunt him or her down, wherever they might be in that room, but never break his tether to his own doorway. In other words, the reason he's in the room in the first place, he's the fact-based, inductive, world-as-it-is pessimist. And he's got to get into the head of the policymaker, even though he knows that he's probably making that man or woman's day worse than it would otherwise be with every sentence he utters. This is funny because it sort of outlines what sounds like a general tension between the two. Oh, no, there is. Look, look, Jordan, you want to drive this one more revolution. This really becomes intense when you're going into the policymaker with what we in the intel community call the unpleasant fact, the estimate, the analysis, the reality that cuts across the preferred narrative, the preferred policy, or the preferred politics. And the dynamic there is, when you're coming in with a very unwelcome message, you better have mastered your brief. Because just by human nature, this is not imputing guilt to anyone, but just by human nature, the instinct of the policymaker will be to push back against that, to, to not believe it, to doubt it, to challenge it, to question it. And so the intel person, when he or she knows they're cutting against the grain, they really got to work hard to grab the attention of the policymaker and make the policymaker listen. And how do they do that in a way that doesn't get them thrown out of the room? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I know your show talks about some of these things. One way is to study how the policymaker learns. So I was only President Obama's CIA chief for three weeks. I mean, I was just kind of standing in until Leon Panetta was confirmed. But in those three weeks, it was clear to me that President Obama learns in a method quite different than the way President Bush learned. Now, President Bush was a great reader. He was in a competition with Karl Rove as to how many books they could read. But when you were there for the intel briefing, although President Bush would read the stuff, you could tell that he learned in the conversation. He learned in the pushback. He learned in the exchange. Now, again, my sample with President Obama is pretty small, but others have kind of confirmed this for me. President Obama is more reflective. President Obama learns in the reading. President Obama learns in the quiet spaces. And so you're going in there. I mean, you're not trying to manipulate the president of the United States, for heaven's sake, but you've got to understand how that human being learns new things. And frankly, you've got to adapt to the president's taste and preferences so that you can do what it was I described before, get inside his or her head. This makes sense. So it's, it's essentially a persuasion subskill set where you think, okay, is this person going to be best served by a dynamic presentation of the facts and let's throw some visuals in there or let me emphasize these points over and over? Or is this something where a detailed report with a lot of citations is going to do the trick much more effectively? And you have to figure that out quick because national security kind of depends on it. The fate of the free world might depend on whether or not you're up to speed on PowerPoint. Yeah. And beyond that, Jordan, would that human being best learn by slowly building from the agreed towards the not yet agreed? (laughs) Or does that person best learn by saying, Mr. President, let me give you a bottom line that I don't think you're going to like. You have to make a choice. Yeah, and I think hopefully most intelligence agents and most people who have to deliver bad news or difficult news know that it's better to rip off the Band-Aid, right? We went into President Bush in late 2007 with a national intelligence estimate that the Iranians had stopped one aspect of their nuclear program. To have a nuclear program, 
Jordan, you got to have fissile material. You got to have a delivery system, missiles. And then you got to master the science of actually building the weapon. That's something small enough and rugged enough to be put on a missile. And we had pretty good evidence that they had stopped that aspect of the program, that they were no longer continuing the aggressive research they had on creating a, a nuclear warhead. That's a really unpleasant message. And we weren't saying, we weren't saying that the Iranians weren't dangerous or that they ultimately would like to have a bomb. We just had the fact that this one part of the program, Mr. President, it's pretty much stopped. And Mr. President, what I'm telling you is not based upon the absence of evidence that it's continuing. It's based on the evidence of absence that we know it's not. Now, that actually put a torpedo into a Bush administration policy to tighten the sanctions on Iran. Frankly, Jordan, a policy I agreed with. I didn't think this development made the Iranians any less dangerous, but it was going to be harder for the administration to make that argument to the Europeans and others in order to pump up the sanctions against the Islamic Republic of Iran. So we took that message in there, and that was an incredibly unpleasant message, but we stood our ground, and the president and the vice president probed and challenged and finally accepted our view. And then here's something that's quite remarkable. Since President Bush was basing his Iranian policy on our previous national intelligence estimate, which said Iran is determined to have a nuclear weapon, and we had made that key judgment public. He felt as a matter of just policy and honesty, we then had to make the new judgment public as well, that Iran had stopped this one aspect of the program. It's kind of a remarkable little morality play as to how this relationship between the intelligence community and the policy community really works. It seems like Anybody anywhere along the line having a mistaken agenda or, well, I should say any agenda, not necessarily a mistaken agenda, any sort of agenda, personal agenda, political agenda, anywhere up the chain could affect the quality or the message that's conveyed all the way to the top and cause a ripple effect that's really undesirable, especially if your goal is to deliver kind of a snapshot that's as unbiased as possible in order to let the policymakers make decisions based on that. You've got it exactly right. And in my book, I try to weave this dynamic into a whole series of policy decisions that we supported. The surge in Iraq, the El Kabar nuclear reactor, which was a nearly complete nuclear reactor in the Syrian desert, in addition to the Iranian program. Policymakers are paid to have agendas. That's the difference between the policymaker and the intelligence professional. I mean, the policymaker, I mean, the people are elected because remember the vision thing. They've already said, well, I'm going to take you this way. This is my agenda. And now the intel guy comes in there trying to be agenda-free in order to create the right kind of dynamic. And again, I cover this in some detail in the book. It has to do with the decision leading up to the surge in Iraq, all right? If you recall, this is 2006, right after the midterm elections, where the Democrats take control of both chambers of Congress. Secretary Rumsfeld resigned. Secretary Gates is brought in. And Baghdad looks like one of Dante's circles of hell. The violence here is so bad. And so we're huddling up twice a day. What's the plan? What are we going to do? And one of the proposals, actually the one we finally landed on, was the dynamic called the surge. If you recall, we sent five additional American combat brigades into Baghdad. Our intelligence message during that discussion was, look, you put five brigades of non-sectarian professional combat power in that city, you're going to drive the violence down. And that's a good thing. But you know, that's not our ultimate goal. 
we're driving the violence down to create space for Nurli al-Maliki, the Iraqi prime minister, to actually become the Iraqi prime minister. In other words, the prime minister of all of Iraq, rather than for the Dawah party or the Shiite community. And we warned in those huddles, that's a low probability shot. Nuri al-Maliki will have to govern beyond his life experience if he's going to use this space we're going to create with American blood and treasure to create a more inclusive government in Iraq. Look, the man spent most of his adult life in exile. He thinks there's a Baathist behind every bush trying to kill him because for most of his life, there was a Baathist behind every bush trying to kill him. Azed, a bit of a low probability shot. Now, I'm, I'm being a bit cartoonish in my explanation here. I'm summarizing three months of huddling, right? But at some point, the president made the decision, I understand what you're telling me, intel guys, send the five brigades. And then there's the punchline, Jordan. About every week for the rest of the Bush administration, President Bush at a personal video teleconference with Nori al-Maliki, trying to coach and mentor this other human being to be what we thought he needed to be in terms of an inclusive prime minister for all of Iraq. So I don't feel as if our advice was rejected then. I think it was accepted. The president understood the dangers, and then he took additional steps to try to mitigate the dangers by this special relationship that he tried to develop with Prime Minister Maliki. You've got this infrastructure overload in the beginning of the book where essentially NSA goes down for a few days because there's so much information coming in because of the, the collection program. Right, this is the explosion of global telecommunications. So we're out there with an architecture, Jordan, and it's kind of based on a signals intelligence environment. There was too little, too hard to get. And now the external telecommunications environment wasn't too little, too hard to get. It was too much, too hard to handle, too hard to understand. You start drinking from the fire hose. Right. And by the way, the fire hose then overwhelmed our ability to drink and our information technology, our IT systems collapsed. Right. And so now suddenly the entire world, we can't listen anymore to our enemies. And this is something that you basically start the book with this kind of, it's like if this were a movie, it would be people running down the halls with an alarm going off and red lights flashing. Am I right? No, that's exactly right. That's actually why I started the book with that chapter. Keep in mind, I was a Clinton appointee to the National Security Agency. It was falling further and further behind. It had some budget problems. It had some cultural problems and so on. And then you had this global telecommunications revolution too. And um, we were on the downslope. I was trying to be cautious. It's a national treasure, you know, for the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. But I had been director for about 10 months and our whole IT system went belly up. And you're right, we were out of business for about 72 hours. That's really dangerous for America. And so at that point, I decided there was no course of action I could set out on. And you were right, I was new to the NSA. I'd never been in it before. My first day in the agency was my first day as director. I decided there was no course of action I could set out on that would be more dangerous to the future of the agency than continuing to sit there and do nothing. And so we started to make some dramatic changes. And I, I would love to get into those as well, because now, of course, you have this huge, broad view of intelligence collection before and after September 11th. But as a side note, there's so much in this book and a lot of it is minute detail. I mean, one of the things that struck me, this is, it was amazing. You said, well, we got in the car and then so-and-so needed another copy of this document. So he said something to Nancy Pelosi and 
how can you possibly remember things in such detail? It's amazing. You keep a super detailed journal of just everything that's going on. No, no. And in fact, we're somewhere between discouraged and disallowed sure. uh, for keeping a journal. You know, for the director of CIA to lose his journal would be a really <laughs> big deal. And so we fix that by not allowing him to have a journal. I can remember broadly things that happened. And, and my, my rhythm for writing the book was simply to pick a topic, El Kabar nuclear reactor. That's that one in the eastern Syrian desert. Take my iPad when I was taking some long trips, and then to the best of my ability, kind of reconstruct what I remember of the story, of the narrative. And after two or three long trips across oceans or continents, I'd have 3,000 words and big gaps that I knew were gaps. And then I would go back to the agencies, NSA, CIA, and so on, and ask to see my files on this topic or from that period. I would go in there and do research, and I couldn't take my notes out without the agency clearing them so that they would not be classified. And I also would make a request, and in addition to my files, I need to talk to him and him and her and her and him and him. I talked to more than 70 people in preparing the book, and I took notes on that. And those notes had to be cleared too. But when they were finally cleared and I brought them home and I kludged them with my 2,500 or 3,000 words on the iPad, I'm getting close to a pretty mature chapter here. That's kind of my guess. That's the 80% solution. And the rest of it is just research and, and recollection. And then finally, you got something ready to show a publisher. Yeah, it seems like a complicated process given that you can't write things on an iPad and take it with you on a flight that are classified and you can't take the research out of the place. I mean, I, I imagine it's like law school where you're just sitting there in a dark room with books all over the place. No one's talking to you and you got to stay there until you're done. Yeah. And like I said, you take the notes, you give them to the agency and then it takes several weeks. They'll give you a call and say, come on back. We're done with your notes. And you, you go there and you pick up your notepad and it's got big black marks on it where, where writing used to be because hey, you can't say that. And you can't say that. But then I would take what survived and, and do what I said I did with it, combine it. Those things would have kind of stimulated my memory as well. And I began to get a more and more mature version of each chapter. And the book is called Playing to the Edge. What does that mean to you? Why did you name the book that? Yeah, actually, my wife named it. The publisher, Penguin, said, uh, okay, book, Hayden, what's the title? I go, oh, title, okay. <laughs> so my wife had read the manuscript, and I said, what do you think it should be? And she said, playing to the edge. I added the colon, American intelligence in the age of terror. But she recognized that one of the themes that permeates the book is that, first of all, I don't get to create the edge. The edge is the box that the American political process creates for its security services. Legally, you mean, in terms yeah. of what you're allowed to do? It's actually a creation of law and policy, all right? Some things are set down in law, other things are set down in policy. But we don't do either of those in the intel community. That's done by elected officials. And that's the box that we're allowed to operate in. And the metaphor for the title is that when operational circumstances demand it, I got to use the whole box. I got to play all the way to the edge. Because if I don't play all the way to the edge, if I don't use all the authorities, the law and policy, by the way, Jordan, if I play to the edge, I know I'm going to have an unpleasant congressional hearing. Some <laughs> newspaper is going to write some unhappy stories. This Playing to the edge is going to be controversial. But if I decide not to play back from the edge, I've suddenly decided to protect myself or more nobly my agency from some unpleasant future. But I've not decided to protect you. And that's my responsibility. And so the theme of the book is that we did some really aggressive, continue to be controversial things. 
I was involved in practically all of them, but in a very non-apologetic way, I described what we did, why we did it, and why we thought it was a good idea. We played to the edge. In the early part of the book, you mentioned to a friend, wouldn't you love to be able to tell people what you do? Is that why you wrote the book? Yes, it frankly is. And what you're referring to is I was in the outback of Australia with an Australian counterpart. We were coming off the ops floor of a facility out there that we share called Pine Gap. We had just gone through an ops morning, seeing what they did. And as we walked out, and it's just the glaring sun of the Australian outback, I turned to my friend and said, wouldn't you like to show your citizens what those kids are doing in there? Intelligence is essential to defend not just American security, but American liberty. Rarely has something so essential been so misunderstood or ununderstood by the population that it serves. And so my purpose, as you suggest, Jordan, in the book is to kind of do what I suggested to my Australian friend. Hey, come with me. I'm going to introduce you to some people and show you a bit of what it is they do on your behalf that you're probably not familiar with. That was why I wrote it. You mentioned liberty versus freedom, and you talk a lot about that in the book. And you mentioned quite brilliantly, in fact, that you say when security concerns arise, we tend to gravitate more towards security right. than liberty in the balance between liberty and security. Do you see or foresee the flagpole moving back towards liberty or security in the future? Because right now, if we've got this tension between liberty and security, right, freedom and oversight, for example, when we have events like September 11th, we tend to gravitate more towards security. Hey, look, we need to be able to see this. We need to be able to hear this. Do you see this eroding consistently or moving back and forth? It moves back and forth, and that's a sign of a mature democracy. Both those things, security, liberty, safety, privacy, those are all virtues. Those are all good things. We want all those. Unfortunately, in the real world, we've got to balance those. Where the appropriate line is, or to use your model, where you plant the flag on that spectrum depends on the totality of circumstances in which you find yourself. Frankly, fully within my authorities, I was more aggressive at three o'clock in the afternoon of September 11th than I was at eight o'clock in the morning as director of NSA. Now, I was fully within my authority. I wasn't coloring outside of any legal lines. I authorized some things I would not have authorized in the morning absent the attack. They were very appropriate. You would have expected me to do it. You would not have expected me to do it before the attack. And so this line is something that we continually negotiate. I actually was on CNN yesterday afternoon. Jake Tapper, who was interviewing me, was talking about, well, did the FBI guys miss the Orlando thing? What should we do to give the Bureau a better chance of catching these kinds of things? talked about more authorities and more money and more people. I said, yeah, those are all things we really ought to look at, Jake. But let me tell you one thing, all right? If we do all that, three, four, five months from now, you're going to have somebody else sitting in this chair. And the topic of conversation is, why do we give the FBI so much power? Isn't that a threat to our liberty and privacy? We swing back and forth between these things. And frankly, no need, no call to complain about it. Certainly not worth your effort because that's the way a free people with democracy works. By the way, there's an additional dynamic. You said after 9-11, wow, we moved that flag up. And I said earlier that American espionage defends not just American security, but American liberty. Because, Jordan, if we would have had another 9-11, well, I'll just let your imagination tell you where that flag was going to end up. If we failed and America suffered another catastrophic attack, we frankly would have turned on ourselves, our neighbors, our privacy, and our own liberties. 
because we were frightened. I, I am very fond of saying, and I think I say it in the book, frightened people don't make good Democrats or Republicans, small d, small r, in both cases. And so an intelligence failure that allows Americans to die doesn't just have an impact on American safety. It will eventually eat away at American freedom, too. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. You're saying 
that espionage is critical to democracy because otherwise we end up moving our own flag further towards security. We tend to maybe react emotionally and can we jump towards one post much more than we maybe should. Again, frightened people don't often make good decisions. One of the reasons I wanted to continue to play to the edge, I knew that if I failed to play to the edge and something bad happened, that edge was going to move. It was going to be far more extensive in terms of what the American people now thought we should be doing to keep them safe. And frankly, you know, I'm an intelligence professional, but I'm an American too. We all went to the same high schools, if you know what I mean. We all share the same values. I worry about American privacy too. I worry about American liberty. I don't want to put it at risk because we failed to handle security threats. This makes sense. In your book, you work very hard and understandably so to dissuade readers thinking freedom versus security thing, this is a sham. But for you, it seems like from the book that the tension between freedom and security is more than some sort of abstraction or abstract ideal. This is basically your entire job. This is why your job is important. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. Look, there's some people out there who will say there are no real trade-offs between our security and our liberty. When somebody says that, my immediate reaction is, well, well, clearly you've never been responsible for either security or liberty, because if you had, you know that was just a stupid sentence. It seems like a thankless job. Yeah, we do this all the time. And so we do it in the context of American democracy, right? We do it with oversight. We do it with occasional court involvement. We do it from time to time. Actually, we do it pretty often with a great deal of controversy. If Tapper would have said then, Jordan, after I said, you know, in four months, you're going to have somebody here complaining about the FBI. If Tapper would have said, well, then how would that make you feel? And actually, the answer in my heart of hearts was, makes me feel like an American. We do this all the time. I mean, you have all this presidential and bureaucratic oversight, which at some level must be a little frustrating, but it seems like you see that as necessary. Oh, it is. Look, I spent a chapter and change in the book, by and large, complaining about congressional oversight. Yeah. It's imperfections. But how can you do this otherwise? I actually conclude one of the chapters on congressional oversight by saying if we made a mistake after 9-11, it was in not telling more stuff to more members of Congress earlier in the process. The president, fully within the law, okay, the law makes it very clear, he can narrow the number of members of Congress that he tells things to. So the president was acting lawfully. I think just as a matter of policy and politics, you should tell as many people in Congress what you're doing as early as possible. If you don't do that, you allow Congress to take a bunch of cheap shots three, four, or five years later when this becomes public and everyone feels safe again. Tell them early. Tell them when everyone feels in danger. And then tell them if they want to stop it, go ahead. Let them make the decision when it was a tough decision. Make the decision in prospect rather than uh, Monday morning quarterback in retrospect. Sure. And thinking about countries where I've been, places like North Korea, where I've, I've visited and I noticed that they're in a constant state of war and there's always an enemy. And whenever we see countries even like Iran or especially North Korea, it's always this outside aggression. The people are scared. They're even scared of tourists who aren't Korean because it's so rare. And going back to your earlier point about scared people don't make good decisions, that's a, clearly a deliberate choice. We saw that with the Soviet Union as well, where everything was constant fear such that they could push and push and push towards security to the point where even though it would be intolerable under any other circumstances, well, you know, if we don't have this, American spies are going to nuke everybody or whatever. Actually, Jordan, we're actually seeing that played out now in today's contemporary Russia, where the Putin administration has pretty much total control over the information environment. And they spend an awful lot of time 
describing NATO and the United States as tremendous dangers to the Russian Federation. Actually, that's a, a good segue, because since the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of the war on terror, we've lost tens of thousands of Soviet analysts to retasking or even just retirement, I would imagine. And given the recent actions of Russia and Putin and the rebuilding of their nuclear forces, is this being taken seriously in the Beltway? And what are the plans to rebuild that capability? So it is being taken seriously. We're serious people, okay? We understand the, the issues. The people still in government understand the issues. But your overall summary is correct. We're more than a brick shy of a load when it comes to the technical systems and the human beings that we now need to put back on the Russian target. I tell a tale in the book. In August of 2008, the Russians invaded Georgia. And I got a panicked phone call from Steve Hadley, the national security advisor, who'd just been called by Misha Saakashvili, the president of Georgia. The Georgia in the Caucasus, for those of you who are thinking, holy crap, the Russians are in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, it's a country. And Saakashvili was afraid that those Russian tanks were, to, were going to come down and get him all the way into Tbilisi, the capital. And so Hadley's question to me was, Mike, where's the Russian army going? I'll get back to you, Steve. So I walked out to my outer office and turned to my assistants and says, get my Georgia people up here right away. And then they started down the phone and, you know, getting people up there with their maps and so on. And while they're doing that, I turned to my chief of staff and said, we got Georgia people, right? Because the emphasis, Jordan, would have been so strong on counterterrorism. We did have Georgia people and they were good. And they gave me a good laydown. But you know what? We had a hell of a time tracking where the Russian army was. And that's something you ought to be able to do against a modern army. We had a difficult time telling Mr. Hadley and the president precisely where the Russians were because the systems we used to have to do that, we didn't have anymore. We had shifted our weight after the fall of the Soviet Union to other problems like terrorism. Right. Meanwhile, our stuff is sitting there rusting and they're polishing the tanks, getting ready to roll into Tbilisi. I can see you there. One guy's got the hold music like he's waiting for his bank to come back to him about a credit card issue. And you're going, please tell me there's not some 22 year old with pimples who's going to run up here and say, I'm the Georgia department. Yeah, well, it was far better than that. Good. But again, the weight of effort for the agency had shifted to terrorism at the expense of other important and growing in importance targets. I mean, you've dealt with a lot of issues here. And of course, during your tenure, you kind of inherited some of the NSA baggage, which resulted in the NSA warrantless surveillance controversy, which is, you know, still a, a giant mess. Yeah, truth in advertising, I didn't inherit that. I started that. Look, I'm glad you said it. I can only get away with so much. You can hang up whenever you want. Um, <laughs> You mentioned in the book, there's a Bulgarian apparatchik who says, the truth is whatever serves the Communist Party. This is earlier in your career. He says that to you. What are you thinking at this point when he says that? Because it seems to come back around later on during the controversy. It does. That actually describes a political class that would be very, very difficult for the intel guys to inject themselves into, to give them information that is not consistent with their vision. Look, you know, we've got our ideologues too, but fundamentally, Americans are pragmatic people. Facts matter. In communism, you had a theory, not of government, you had a theory of history. And Marx writes like he knows. In fact, he writes that he does know how history turns out. And his version of history is this unrelenting hostility between the imperialists and the socialist states. 
So there's no amount of evidence that the KGB can bring to the leadership to say, you know, I don't think the Americans are that aggressive against us. Of course they're that aggressive against us would be the response. Haven't you read Marx? Karl Marx, right? The famous yeah. communist. Yeah, not Groucho. <laughs> this is an example of what I tried to describe before, but in this case, the policymakers are pretty much captured and enslaved by their ideology. And in the contemporary world, I would say that the leadership of radical Islam, of radical jihadism, is equally captured by their own ideology, which says there is undying enmity between Islam and the West. And we'll get to that in a bit. I definitely want to hear more about that. I do want to ask, though, the truth is whatever serves the Communist Party. To what extent, minus maybe the Communist part, to what extent does that also ring true when we're talking about things like data collection, domestic surveillance, enhanced interrogation, extraordinary rendition, or the critics of these policies, I should say. I would imagine they're ripping that page out of the book and putting it on the wall. One review in the I think it was the New York Review of Books hit upon that particular argument. They began with the discussion in Bulgaria. Truth is what serves the party. I said these are controversial, remember? Playing to the edge means you're going to get some unpleasant newspaper articles written about you. And these will remain controversial. History will rarely conclude, oh, that was clear. We should just stand down on that question. Because even if you get past that point in history, the importance of those questions remain. So let's do the NSA program, the so-called domestic surveillance program. What we were trying to do was to detect the one kind of terrorist communications that should have been most important. Terrorist communications, one end of which were in the United States of America. Now, there are only limited tools to do that. And so we did do some things that were quite aggressive, quite unprecedented, but quite legal. I'm quite comfortable that what we did was and remains lawful. You want kind of an exclamation point on that. You had the senator from Illinois, Mr. Obama run for president on the platform that he's not George Bush. And when President Obama is president-elect and he gets briefed on these programs that started under President Bush, he doesn't shut them down. He keeps the surveillance programs, which, to my mind, you know, every political bone in his body knew that he would have advantage if he canceled it, but he didn't. And that, to me, is, is a pretty good indicator that, number one, they were effective, and number two, they were lawful. Now, the CIA programs, which I did inherit, those were all well underway before I got there. And in fact, if you go through that section of the book, I'm kind of there taking that program apart brick by brick, not criticizing my predecessors. They had their issues. I had mine. We knew more about Al-Qaeda when I was director than we did when George Tenet was director in 2001 and 2002. So I could afford to change some things, but I'm not second guessing George. That program remains even more controversial than the domestic surveillance program, the so-called domestic surveillance program. And that program, President Obama did shut down most aspects of it. We used to call it RDI, renditions, detentions, and interrogations. President Obama shut down DNI. He told me on inauguration day, shut down the CIA black sites. It wasn't very hard. They were empty. And I don't want you guys doing the interrogations anymore. That wasn't very hard either. We didn't have any detainees. But he did keep renditions, the extrajudicial movement of someone from place A to place B. Even President Obama, running on being the anti-George Bush, felt that, no, I need to keep that one in the quiver. I may want to use that one. And so, look, these are all controversial and good Americans can disagree on all of them. That's the point I make throughout the book. This is about good people with opposing points of view 
arguing them out within a free society. My take was, I would like to argue them based on facts. And so my book is an attempt to put the facts out there as I know them to be. So what do you think about some of those recent scares about how much information and metadata that NSA is collecting? Because in the book, some of it does seem a little ominous. There's a slogan up for some of the targeted killing with the drones and things like that. We track them, you whack them. And I get that for military purposes. But when civilians read that, a lot of us are like, dang, that's kind of crazy. We don't like the fact that this looks like a video game in its simplicity, of course, only in our imagination as to how easy this is. What do you think about some of those scares? And Yeah, the image is that this is emotionless killing. It just looks like a video game. I got a joystick and off we go. Actually, Jordan, the opposite is actually very true, quite true. These activities have tremendous impact on the people who are doing them because by the nature of this, you know, you're looking at a compound from an unmanned aerial vehicle, a drone. We require these people to look at that compound for hours, if not days, before you take a shot. And so these people are looking down at that compound. They're seeing this terrorist, and we know he's a terrorist. We're seeing him play with his kids. We're seeing him talking to his wife. We're seeing him having a dinner with his neighbors. And we're waiting for him to get in the car and drive a little bit off the compound so we don't kill his family. And when he gets 100 or 200 meters off the compound, we take the shot. That is tremendous emotional burden that the mission is putting on those people. Because you've just watched this human being act like a human being. So this is not emotionless killing. Yeah, and you do cover that in the book as well. You talk about the translators and the trackers and some of the drone pilots who are, they're intimately involved in the lives of their targets. It's not like they show up with their coffee and click, you know, the bomb button and then they're, you know, nuking people. They're not shooting people with drones and and missiles and then going to grab sushi. They're listening to phone calls. They're watching the movements, like you said, watching them play with the kids. And a lot of them get emotional when they have to confirm the killing of the target. And some people refuse, you wrote. I did. We talked about some of our language analysts who were on terrorism targets. We had geolocated the phone. We were intercepting the call live, and we were about to take the shot. You would turn for that last confirmation to say, that's him on the phone, right? Of course, the analyst would know based upon voice recognition. And the analyst would also know that if he or she said yes, the next sound he or she would hear would be the explosion. We had some analysts at at NSA who did not morally object to the mission that just could not gather the emotional balance to do that mission themselves. So they requested to opt out. But more broadly, on the question of targeted killing, we track them, you whack them. To give you a sense of the broader picture, Jordan, we believe we're at war. And we've had two presidents now, very different presidents, the 43rd and the 44th, President Bush, President Obama, both say we are a nation at war. And therefore, we are in a global conflict with Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. And therefore, as a belligerent, We have the right to take our fight to this enemy when he threatens us. There aren't many other countries around the world who accept that legal theory I just laid out for you. Even our best friends don't think it's legitimate for the United States to act as a belligerent outside of Iraq and Afghanistan, which, of course, are are war zones. But we do. And two very different presidents think we do. And therefore, we have opted. We believe we have the moral and legal authority under international law to actually use targeted killings against individuals in parts of the world where the local government is unwilling and or unable to allow normal law enforcement activities to reduce or eliminate this threat to the United States. I take the point. It's really controversial. 
we're kind of by ourselves out there. I, I think maybe Israel agrees with our theory. And frankly, within the last year, the British took their own shot under that theory, and they took it against a British citizen. At least in one instance, they've kind of lined up in the queue with us. But by and large, this is a uniquely American legal theory. I, you can probably tell from the tone of my voice, Jordan, I'm really comfortable with it. I think it's legal and moral and necessary. I don't discount, but a lot of other good folks don't agree with any of those three adjectives. Sure. I, I mean, targeted killing has become as essentially a core part of the American way of war in recent years. And of course, to do it right, and I put that in air quotes because I don't want 10,000 emails, but to do it right requires the kind of exquisite... Exquisite intelligence. That's right. I am not claiming that we haven't heard or killed some people we weren't mad at. All right. I think the targeted killing program, I actually say it in the book, is the most precise application of firepower in the history of armed conflict. I really do. But that doesn't mean collateral damage is zero. Collateral damage does happen. I talk in the book about the killing of a fellow named Abu Khabab, who was a WMD, a weapons of mass destruction expert for Al-Qaeda. And we've been hunting him for a long time. And when we finally had an opportunity to take a shot, he decides to sleep outdoors because in that part of the world, it gets very hot at night. And very often people sleep outdoors. And he's sleeping outdoors with his grandson not too far away from him. But we're going to take it. But we engineered the shot every way we could to make sure all the energy from the Hellfire missile went to granddad and not to grandson. All the energy went away from the sun. We did our best. We failed. We killed him. But unfortunately, his grandson also died. I, I bid it candidly in the book, Jordan. You know, in the real world, things rarely come out black and white. Sure. I mean, it's trying to swat a fly with a shotgun. It's just not going to work. You wouldn't do that. In your house, there's a lot of balancing of decisions here, very difficult operational and political decisions that you can't really make if you're not in that position and thinking, this is a guy who is brewing something, orchestrating some massive attack. If you didn't do it, and then you reported later on, well, we had a chance to shoot him, but he was holding a kid, it would look pretty ridiculous if that guy had just blown up the Oklahoma City Federal Building with the daycare in the basement. Nobody would forgive you for that. Jordan, even I know there are second, third, and fourth order effects to doing this. And a lot of those effects aren't good. Number one, you do get collateral damage, even if you try very, very hard. Number two, you do kind of feed the jihadi recruitment video with you know the heartless crusaders using these weapons from 20,000 feet. We've got a fairly unique legal theory here it kind of alienates some of our allies, particularly in Western Europe, who don't agree with our legal theory. So we know that when we're buying that first order effect, this bad man is no longer a real problem for us. We're also buying the second, third, and fourth order effects too. So I conclude that chapter on targeted killings and unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, by saying what we need here is not a switch, but a dial. We need to be very prudent with regard to how often we do this and should only do it when it's really necessary, because there are other effects that are not positive. So one might ask, can a democracy keep that up? And can our democracy keep that up? Because it seems almost contrary to some of our values to do things like that. Well, you know, our democracy has been arguing about it for 15 years, you know, and our democracy may change direction next year under a different president. We're going to have to see. Jordan, we got no other tools for doing this. I don't mean the drones. I mean decision making. The only way we have to make decisions is to allow our political processes, the people we elect, do what we elected them to do. And sometimes they're going to make decisions that in retrospect may, may not seem as wise as they looked in prospect. Uh, they may make decisions 
that suddenly go out of favor, not because they suddenly got wrong, but because the control of the House and Senate changed hands. That stuff just happens. And what I try to work in the book, the description is the agency, CIA, NSA, they're going to be there. They're going to be there from Clinton through Bush, through Obama, through whoever comes up next. And they're still going to have these same responsibilities. And so my purpose in writing the book is to try to remind the American people that the human beings inside these big three-letter organizations aren't aliens. They're their friends and neighbors. They share their values. They are just put in circumstances, Jordan, where they have to apply these values in situations most Americans will never see and in many cases will never learn of. That's one of the themes I try to emphasize in the book. You say in the book, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to do the kinds of things we need to do to keep America safe unless Americans are more confident in our actions, more comfortable with what we're doing, and we can't buy that with anything other than more openness. And that's just the way it's going to be. What do you mean by openness? Yeah, so what we've got is a shifting political culture inside the United States. I'm probably not the first person on your show, Jordan, to mention this, but there's a lot of distrust out there. You've heard that from others, right? I have seen that somewhere. Yeah. I mean, not many people are willing to cut the government a break when there are elements of doubt, right? And the intelligence community is part of that. When I I was director of NSA, I was fond of saying, look, we only need to be two things to be successful. We need to be powerful. And frankly, we need to be secretive. And we exist inside a broader political culture that distrusts, frankly, only two things, power and secrecy. You've got this trust factor that we have with the American people. And and I've concluded, because the American people are growing increasingly skeptical about a lot of things, that the American intelligence community is just going to have to show the American people a little bit more of what it's doing for them. The American people aren't going to give them a blank check based on blind trust. Now, there are limits to that, Jordan. Please don't let any of your listeners kid themselves. Making more of this stuff public is going to shave points off of operational effectiveness. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying to my friends still in the intelligence community is, if you don't share more of what it is you're doing, it's not going to matter because the American people aren't going to give you the permission to do these things in the first place. So we're just going to have to be a bit more open about some of the things we do. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit. 
to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Speaking of openness and sharing, let's look at a little bit of unauthorized sharing. I mean, in the book, you mentioned Edward Snowden. We mark him as kind of a narcissistic defector. How did he shave points off? How did he damage us, as you put it? So let me give you the very modestly limited positive news first, all right? I am willing to concede the Snowden revelations distorted but accelerated a necessary conversation. And Jordan, you already made reference to it, the NSA program and metadata and so on, all right? So he accelerated a necessary conversation, distorted it as well. The other 98% of the stuff that he stole and his accomplices have made public have nothing to do with your privacy or mine. They have everything to do with how your government collects legitimate foreign intelligence. I point out that this is the greatest hemorrhaging of legitimate American secrets in the history of the republic. And Jordan, you are less safe today because of it. Rick Leggett is now the deputy director of NSA. Rick was obviously a more junior officer when I was there, but a really smart one. Rick, about a month or so ago, said that they are approaching a thousand and counting a thousand foreign intelligence targets whom they know with confidence have changed their communications patterns based upon the revelations triggered by the documents that Snowden stole. That makes you and me and our friends less safe than we would otherwise be. If you could say something to Edward Snowden, knowing that he listens to this particular episode, what would it be? You have the right to remain silent. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to answer it. Has anyone asked you that before? You were pretty ready with that one. Yeah, I got asked that at Stanford. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, man, he had that locked and loaded. Good for you. <laughs> look, look, I stand by what I described in this, you know, self-centered, narcissistic, hopelessly naive, and so on. He's done something that's really harmed our country. He's surrounding it as an act of civil disobedience. If you read American literature on civil disobedience, the Keystone document is Henry David Thoreau on civil disobedience. And Thoreau points out that civil disobedience, disobeying a law with which you disagree, civil disobedience takes its moral worth by your willingness to suffer the consequences for disobeying the law. He's not willing to do that. You've dealt with some of the world's most complex problems at the highest levels. Where do you see things going with organizations like ISIS and the domestic slash homegrown threats, both in the USA and and Europe? Yeah, so let me begin with a little political incorrectness. This is about Islam. It's not about all of Islam, or for God's sake, it's not about all Muslims. There is a civil war going on inside one of the world's great monotheisms. And until that civil war shakes out, we are going to see these bursts of violence that will not be limited to the Islamic world, but will show up in the West, be it Paris, Brussels, San Bernardino, or Orlando. And I fear Islam is going through what Christendom went through in the 17th century, when Christendom made its peace with what you and I guys call modernity. How do you reconcile the transcendental, transcendental faith with science and reason? That was a real tough question for Christendom. It fought a war in the middle of Europe called the Thirty Years' War in the middle of the 17th century. It was at least as bad as what's going on in the Middle East now. Estimates are that about a third of the population of Europe died during that war. But as we came out of that war and came out of that century, 
we in the West made our peace between faith and science, between transcendental thinking and modernity. We organized ourselves into nation states and we separated the sacred from the secular. Islam is having that debate now. I should warn you, Islam doesn't necessarily have to come up with the same answer Christendom did. Christendom's solution is not a trend line. It's a point. And so we'll see what this other great monotheism decides for its future. But there is a grand struggle going on within the monotheism. I was in Wales a couple of weekends back and listened to a wonderful British professor at the uh, Hay Festival, a uh, literary festival that's held there every year. And he was asked a question after he had given this long, really great lecture on Europe in the 17th century. He says, what lessons from Europe in the 17th century what might we apply to what's going on in the Middle East? And, and he frankly said pretty much what I just told you. He frankly said that Paris and Brussels and Orlando and San Bernardino were spillage from what is inherently this conflict within Islam that is probably going to take a generation or two to settle. And so this is not something that's going to be solved when we successfully target Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the caliph of the Islamic State, or if we successfully overthrow Bashar al-Assad, the president sort of dictator of Syria. Those are probably good things, but this thing's not going away for a long time. Since we have you here and it's timely, I wonder what you think of the whole Apple iPhone encryption issue. A lot of people probably realize that the San Bernardino terrorist, the shooter, had an iPhone and the FBI asked Apple to unlock it and they said no because they didn't want to alter the operating system to be less secure. What do you think about that? It sort of falls right in line with the whole security versus liberty argument. Yeah, actually I side with Apple and uh, I'm not the only person like me that sides with Apple. Two of my predecessors at NSA, Keith Alexander and Mike McConnell, side with Apple. Mike Chertoff, former Secretary of Homeland Security, sides with Apple. Dave Petraeus, Apple. Richard Clark, used to handle cyber and terrorism for the National Security Council, sides with Apple. I'll rephrase your dilemma a little bit, Jordan. I don't think this is a constitutional question. I actually think the government has the right to demand it. I don't think it's a privacy question. After all, he's dead and it wasn't his phone. I think this is a security question. And looking at this question purely through the security lens, I actually side with Apple on the side of good encryption. In other words, what I'm saying, guys, I think the government has the right to demand they open the phone. I just don't think it's a really good idea because terrorism isn't the only threat against the United States. In fact, the last couple of years, Jim Clapper, who's the director of national intelligence, has led off his annual worldwide threat briefing by saying the number one threat to the United States is cyber. You know, you might want to think two or three times before you, on behalf of a legitimate counterterrorism need, don't, don't mistake that. It'd be a really good thing to read that phone. On behalf of a legitimate counterterrorism need, do something that makes encryption on which all of us depend for cybersecurity less secure than it would otherwise be. And so on security grounds alone, I'm with Apple on this one. So do you think you support Apple in sort of the broad sense, but maybe a narrow exception for this particular... No, I don't. I don't think this phone rises to the level that an exception is needed. Jordan, you ask a great question because, you know, all these things are relative. I just told you that I wouldn't do it for even these legitimate CT needs because you actually create a far more extensive cyber weakness over here. I can think of CT circumstances that actually dominate a cybersecurity circumstance on this side, but this isn't one of them. I reserve the right to judge specific issues as they come up. But this one was pretty clear to me. We should not automatically default 
to the needs of counterterrorism or law enforcement when it comes to weakening encryption in the domain, the cyber domain, in which we are all very much at risk. How do you reconcile then supporting that encryption while the NSA collects tons of data on unencrypted communication? Yeah, because there's a second order effect if you weaken Apple's encryption. You're going to make Americans less safe in the cyber domain to allow other people to steal their stuff. NSA targets foreigners for legitimate foreign intelligence purposes. And why wouldn't you want your foreign intelligence service to intercept legitimate foreign intelligence targets? Yeah, I mean, if anyone knows why communications need to be encrypted, it's the former head of the NSA, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Now, actually, Jordan, you bring up a subplot here. It's really important. It really doesn't matter what you or I think about the Apple issue. Frankly, it doesn't matter what the Congress does about the Apple issue or what a judge does about the Apple issue. The unavoidable arc of technology, Jordan, is in the direction of encryption, really good encryption. There's no law or court order or an opinion on a podcast that's going to stop that arc. So people like me, who are still in government, are going to have to live with the reality that the content of communications is going to be increasingly difficult to recover, and there's nothing you can do to stop that. That's where science is going. Yeah, it's like trying to stop a waterfall by making legislation right. that says it can't do that anymore. It's just not going to stop. So my counsel is, okay, get over it. There's still digital exhaust out there, Jordan. It's probably going to disturb your civil libertarian listeners, but there's an awful lot of stuff out there that you can collect through electronic surveillance against legitimate foreign targets and never get to the content of the communication. You can still create actionable intelligence. It's going to just going to be less about content and more about all the other stuff that's being thrown out into the cyber domain. Sure. I got to ask you, man, what do you have to say about Trump? I mean, you're decidedly somewhat conservative, but you also know how intimately you intimately know how the U.S. deals with other countries, both in terms of diplomacy, militarily, espionage cooperation. What do you think about what do you think about uh, the Donald? If he were to become president and would govern in any way comparable to the language he has used as a candidate, I would be very concerned about the welfare of the nation and the welfare of the world. And the longer this goes on, his language as a candidate doesn't change. And so I am increasingly concerned. Are there people that are in your former position now in the administration who can say, hey, that whole thing about you wanting to do this crazy policy, yeah, we just can't do that, I can't do that, or we won't do that? Or I actually said on national TV during my book tour, I was on the Bill Maher show, and Trump said we, we should target the families of terrorists. And I just simply said, Bill, that's just not going to happen. And he said, what do you mean? Is that a military coup? I said, no, Bill. I said, look, that's in violation of American law. It's in violation of international law. It violates the laws of armed conflict. If such an order were ever to be issued, when it hit the first man or woman inside of an American military uniform, that individual would simply say what I just said. I'm sorry, sir. This is just not going to happen. Imagine a future in which Mr. Trump is president and he does insist on that. I mean, that has the makings of a constitutional crisis. Hence my comment earlier, Jordan, I'm pretty worried. Yeah, good. That makes many of us, (laughs) I think. You've seen some of the top technology that's ever existed anywhere. And so I'm wondering which companies maybe in Silicon Valley, the NSA or you admire most in terms of their technology. Have you seen developments where you just think, dang, that is advanced, even if it's just getting a car from the airport? 
No, I'm, I'm not going to handicap all the things going on in the Valley. I will give you a macro statement, though, okay? So I'm, a, I'm an American Air Force officer. I was 39 years in the Air Force. America's Air Force is, is frankly, simply the military expression of American aviation industry. By the same token, NSA and, and other technical intelligence collection activities around the country, they are the intelligence expression of the American computing, telecommunications, and cyber industry. Put another way, most of the stuff we're going to need to keep ourselves safe in a digital world are going to be developed and invented by the private sector, not the government. And so you asked me about Snowden earlier. Snowden's revelations, and particularly the way they were rolled out and written about, has made the relationship between the government and its legitimate activity and the valley and its legitimate activities more difficult. We need to rebuild those bridges so that American security can take advantage of the kinds of things that American industry creates. Instead of understanding a lot of the nuances, the sometimes deadly nuances that intelligence officials deal with on a daily basis, a lot of people, of course, criticize intelligence agencies for not doing enough when they feel in danger, as you write in the book, while then reserving the right to criticize those same agencies for doing too much once they feel safe again. You're in quite the predicament, but it's probably a good one to be in from the perspective of a civilian. Oh, no, it's fine. Remember what I told you on Tapper yesterday? If you would have followed on my question, I own Jacob four months, you're going to have somebody here complaining about the Bureau, and my fanciful ending, which did not happen, would be, how does it make you feel? And the answer was, it makes me feel good to be an American. That's what we do. And if you're going to strap on these kinds of jobs, CIA and NSA, you better button your chin strap, because this is the kind of reality that's going to take place. It's how our democracy works, and we're better for it. We're more secure for it, more free for it. This reminds me a little bit of Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. I can't remember the exact quote, but he's something about you stand there and question the freedom that I provide and question the manner in which I provide it. Yeah. Obviously, you're not ordering the uh, code red. This type of thing should make us stop and think about what we're really willing to give or to tolerate to preserve our illusions of safety in what is an inherently dangerous world. Uh, that's exactly right. And that theme kind of permeates the book. This is a field of gray. There is no white, and rarely is there even any black. The decisions that the government has to make, the security agencies have to make to defend America are always shades of gray, and they'll always be controversial. Somebody's got to make them and then live with the consequences. Either way, Jordan, I used to I tell the story that for a lot of my time at CIA, I'd get a phone call in the middle of the night. I'd have a pretty good idea of what it was before I would pick up the phone I simply quietly say to myself, okay, remember, Hayden, whatever you decide on this phone call, you're going to live with for the rest of your life, which, Jordan, was not an invitation to be conservative because you realize if you're conservative too often, you may have to live with a catastrophe that you had a chance to prevent. And those are the kinds of questions that the people still in government have to face routinely. We ask you as intelligence agencies to do virtually an impossible job, which is to protect us from the future while we go get sushi and then watch the NBA finals while you sweat it out. What's your decision-making system like? I mean, you must have some sort of process that says, all right, this is really important. I can't just wing it based on my gut reaction that morning. There's got to be some sort of system or rubric that you use personally or that the agencies use. Oh, sure. First of all, you're operating, again, within your political and legal guidance, right? Your policy and legal guidance. So you roughly know where your limits are. Within those limits, now you have to make some operational decisions. Some are so important or so unique, you kind of toss them downtown for some additional guidance. But I got to tell you, when you do that too often, 
they're going to decide they really don't need you to be the CIA director. They can just do it themselves. And so you take on an awful lot of things you have to decide within the agency based upon the policy and legal guidance that you have. And so when you're faced with a difficult dilemma, my technique was get smart people in their room, ask them what they think and start challenging them, ask them a bunch of questions and make them explain themselves. And in those kinds of conversations, I generally got to a comfort level with a course of action that we would follow. The last question you would ask is to turn to the lawyer in the room and say, you good with this? And of course, you know, that final check with regard to legality, then you would move forward. General, what do you think is the greatest threat to the nation right now? If you imagine in the air between us, I've got a little graph with an X and a Y axis, okay? With the vertical axis being how bad is it, and the horizontal axis being how urgent is it, all right? In the lower left-hand corner of that graph, in other words, it's really urgent, but the danger is not catastrophic, existential. I'd put terrorism. Look, an attack as bad as Orlando is not going to destroy the American way of life. On the other hand, if a TSA agent makes a bad decision tonight at Dulles Airport, something bad could happen by tomorrow morning. So it's urgent and it's bad, but there are limits to the badness. And then you go out that horizontal axis, that timeline, three, five, seven years. Here I start to run into a problem that's actually more serious. Here I start to run into states that I call ambitious, fragile, and nuclear. And here I've got North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, Russia. Again, it's not going to happen overnight. If we don't handle it well, that could be really bad in five years. And then way off the line, maybe 10 years out, I've got the future American relationship with China. And we got time. There's nothing going to happen the next week that's going to make this a crisis, I don't think. But this one's really important. This one's pass-fail. We get this one wrong. How does a status quo power, that's us, handle an emerging power, that's China, in a way that creates a new global equilibrium and doesn't lead to global war? That's the pass-fail challenge. If you're in intelligence, you're trying to work all of them. And the problem you've got, Jordan, is that urgent one, because it's urgent, is sucking all the air out of the room. And you've got to work really hard to preserve your and your agency's resources to make sure they pay attention to these other issues that aren't quite as urgent, but are frankly more important. Why is that Tom Petty song your theme song? After the 9-11 attack, I went over to uh, CIA and CIA had uh, plastered all over the building, desks and computers and so on. Todd Beamer's last words or last recorded words on that flight that went into the field in Western Pennsylvania. Let's roll. And for CIA, which has to do a lot of its things forward out of garrison, let's roll fit perfectly. So what could we use as a rallying thing? We do a lot of our things from garrison because, you know, it's electronic surveillance. And my wife and I were watching a benefit late one night, shortly after the attack. And Tom Petty was one of the acts. And he was singing, We Won't Back Down. And my wife just turned to me and said, that's your motto. And so it was. We plastered that up on all NSA installations around the planet. And we got Mr. Petty's permission to use his song at a whole bunch of events and uh, just use that as kind of a rallying, unifying theme for the folks at NSA in the early years of the war. General, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, guys, thank you very much.
Well, that turned into a really interesting episode. I love the fact that he is so open about this and very candid. You can tell that they chose the right man for the job when it came to handling these issues in a way that, quite frankly, not everybody could handle. I think writing a book about this must have been exhausting. If you're interested in that, of course, it is quite the publication. I think it's 560 plus pages, and you can find that link in the show notes called Playing to the Edge by General Michael Hayden. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank the general on Twitter. Yes, he he now has Twitter. I would imagine he's a relatively new addition. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as his book that we had mentioned on the show. And you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. And we link to the show notes directly on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to engage with us there, ask questions, give feedback, and find some articles, insights, and other things that don't make it to the show. Also, we've got The Art of Charm Challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or in the USA only text charmed to 33444 that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444 it's all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you we'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show and I've got regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every week this will make you a better networker a better connector and a better thinker that's the artofcharm.com slash challenge or text CHARMED in the U.S. to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.